I'd been about a month or, or so ago to visit him, and he's just this wonderful man. They have this little parish, and you know there are about a dozen patients and people who go, but you know they have a service every day. And I sent him a copy of my book, uh, and then he invited my mother and I back, and we went for three days. And he said to me, he said to me. I'm reading your book and it's very interesting. He said, the only thing that I haven't got to in your book and it's really worrying me is where do we go from here? He said, you haven't talked about heaven, you haven't talked about being with God the Father. And he said, you know, I'm really concerned about that and I'm just hoping that you're going to get to that before I get to the last page of the book. <laughs> and he's just the dearest man, you know, and I said to him, it was one of those blessed moments where I think I really was able to to respond really skillfully. I said to him, I said to him, do you know, Father, I don't know what's going to happen after I'm, I'm gone. And that's the truth. But I said, do you know, what I'm trying to do is live my life with the greatest integrity and with the most love now. And I said, I make mistakes. I stumble and fall all the time but I'm really trying with all my heart to live the best life I can. And whether, you know, I go to heaven or whether I'm born again or whether I come back as a butterfly, I said, I'll, I'll have a better place in heaven. I'll be a more beautiful butterfly, depending on how my life is lived now. And it was like he could accept that, you know? Yeah. So I said, you know, that's really where I'm putting my my emphasis and I feel like that's that's where that's how I try to to deal with worry and concerns about the future too it's like truly not in some airy fairy way not in some way I've read in the books or the way the Buddha even said it it's like I really feel that for me it makes no sense to spend too much time worrying about the future. What I can do is live my life now. And um, that's it <laughs> on that. <laughs> OK. The other thing I learned is that it's so easy, you know, especially for us guys, you know, who are so socialized into, you know, don't be scared, you know, be tough, you know, all those messages that we we got that being scared is some sort of weakness. But of course it's for all of us. I certainly don't want to make it a gender thing. That it's so easy sometimes to forget that we don't always have to be kamikaze pilots, you know, that when the fear comes up, you know, in me there's a part of me that just wants to get to the bottom of it and get to the bottom of it right now, trying to prove to some part of myself that I can do it. I think that one of the most important lessons also about fear is that there are times to engage the fear and there are times to back off. There are really times, particularly when the mind is not calm, when the mind is not concentrated, when there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of wisdom in backing off, going for a walk. For me, sometimes when the fear is great is going out and looking at a flower or a bird and reminding myself that the world is also beautiful or the ocean, you know, just sitting and watching the ocean, recharging, renewing, re re restoring the heart, the soul or whatever you call it, and then 
coming back at a later juncture. There's always a later juncture, but not feeling we have to do it all now. And developing that capacity and wisdom of heart and mind to know when to come forward and to know when to pull back. Terribly, terribly important. The other thing that I've learned over the years, and particularly also for those of us who have sexual abuse in our histories, is that it's very easy to have a notion, even subtle, that we have within us lurking somewhere a great big reservoir of fear and anger or whatever that needs to be ventilated, that we need to somehow get out of ourselves. And that the journey in some way is about a journey to this terrain where we uh, vent it, uh, emit it, let go of it, exorcise it, whatever. And then beyond that, you know, it's like the rosy glow of, of, of heaven and enlightenment. It feels really important to question any notion that, that um, we carry within us uh, some groundswell of fear that needs to be dealt with. I've seen more and more that really the path of meditation is about understanding that there are patterns as a result of history that were conditioned by the circumstances of history. And that when our buttons are pushed in specific ways, somebody gets close or touches me in a way that feels inappropriate, fear arises. Someone else says something or deals with me in a certain way, anger arises. Something arises, a button gets pushed, fear arises. Beginning to see how these processes work in the heart and in the mind, I feel is that the path of meditation, the birthing of wisdom, the beginning of making these difficult junctures much more workable. The notion that, that there's a reservoir that needs to be tapped and got rid of, I think uh, is highly questionable and for me has been a stumbling block along the way. I think there's one more thing I'm going to, there's so much. I mean, just look here. There's all of this. And there's all of this stuff. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm going I'm to fit a cork in about two minutes and sort of open us up a little here. It's getting darker, isn't it? Ooh. <laughs> um, For me, one of the most heartbreaking insights in the meditation practice was beginning to see that while fear was so painful and my denial of fear was so great, that what is also possible when the fear is not understood and the fear is not workable is that fear of fear arises. So it's like the fear arises and, oh my God, it's fear. And then it's like there's just more fear. And it's almost like this terrible cycle of fear comes. And so, you know, when I, you know, in those times of my life where 
where I felt so anxious and so frazzled. Um, so often it's about fear and then the fear of fear. And so it feels like the meditation practice, making fear workable, is the greatest blessing that I can give myself. Because what it means is that I'm delivering myself from that vicious cycle of fear that has kept me for a large part of my life deeply and fearfully imprisoned. Uh, and these days, as I do in measure populate landscapes that are free of fear, it feels like unquestionably one of the greatest blessings. I feel very, very, very grateful to my teaching, to my teachers, to to the teachings of, of the Buddha and for those of, who have inspired me um, to do the best I can. And I think on that note, I'm going to ask you to join me just in a few minutes of quiet and then we'll open up. Thank you. and all beings be happy and peaceful. May we and all beings be filled with love and kindness and compassion. And may we and all beings know what it means to live without fear completely. May we be happy just the way we are. May we be peaceful with what is happening and may we love ourselves completely. invitation for any discussion, any dialogue, any thoughts that you may have concerning either uh, what we have been exploring this morning or the meditation practice. This is our opportunity to hear from one another.
you got your experience of dealing with the diagnosis of AIDS and your personal loss. I'm coming out of nine years of a very devastating illness that affected my cognitive abilities as well as my physical abilities, in which I lost a lot of my life. And now coming out of it and also losing the relationship that guided me through that whole process, I experienced much more fear than I did when I was completely incapacitated. And you're speaking about coming to the moment and not events. And so you were in that future. Reminds me again. that might be quite general for a lot of people is that clinging fear, like become an old friend. And can you kind of address, you know, getting rid of that block that happens to the just would like, may I acknowledge what you said earlier? Um, just two things that come to mind for me. One is, you, you said that the fear is greater now than it was when you were incapacitated. Of course, I don't know how that is for you, but from my own experience, what I have seen is that in recent years, and particularly since coming to this beloved island a year ago, I am opening into facets of my life, both physically and emotionally, that have been unavailable to me, and I'm 50 years old next month. And there is considerable fear about opening to the possibilities of this time. It's almost like it's more comfortable for me to be in the limitation because it's what is familiar. And for me to spread my wings <coughs> means that I have to listen very carefully to that voice in me that says, 
don't open your wings too hard. You know, excuse me, Gavin, there's going to be, what do they say? Something before the fall, you know? Something, you know, you're going to crash before you, 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 you're going to fall. Uh-uh, no, no, this is too much. You're being too bold. And, you know, that is the voice of fear. It's the voice that keeps us constricted. And <coughs> being able to see that voice as nothing more than energy in the mind, born of patterns of conditioning that have their origins in history, and not being defined by those voices, and sometimes making a joke of them. Sometimes saying, huh, there you go again. Oh, you're back. There you go. Of course, I'm having a good time. It's about time you sh sort of showed your face. <laughs> you know, just making it workable. And humor is a very important part of dealing with these bitter emotions, you know, particularly fear and anger. It's like they can unravel them. And so that was my one response to what you're saying is that as you enter this, this, this time of more capability than you had then, there's more fear. It's almost like there's a sort of comfort in being um, incapacitated. There's a sort of, I mean, I left in Massachusetts the most incredible support system. I had like a support group of friends for 12 years. We met every month, and they cheered me on. They took me to the doctor when I was sick. They visited me in hospital, brought me food. You know, they helped me through all, all my emotional crises, and they took me to the doctor when they needed to. They were there, you know, for 12 years. I had my doctor. The hospital was two blocks away. The acupuncturist, you know, everybody, the cranial sacral guy, you know, they were all like, poised and ready. So I came to this island, you know, the only person I knew was Kathleen over the phone, her voice mm -hmm. over the phone, and they invited me to the volcano. That was it. I didn't know a single soul. And then I come here, and then it's like whoever, God or whoever, tells me this is where you got to be. It's like, excuse me? Mm -hmm. It's like, I've got to go back to my guys, you know? <laughs> and so it's like, you know, it's so easy to make working with fear an esoteric thing, you know, the dark night of the soul, but it's actually, I like to think of it as something very practical. It's like, okay, so we've got our support group in Massachusetts and all the comfort and so-called security of that, and we've got a heart that's saying we have to go to Hawaii, you know? And there are a whole lot of thoughts going on here. Well. The meditation practice helps me see those as just, yeah, thank, thanks for sharing, thanks for sharing, you know. <laughs> and so, and so um, that's why I said, you know, just being able to at least even know that we're not our thoughts. Even if in the moment they feel like they're who you are, you still have the perspective of those clear times when you know you're not. It's such a blessing, you know. So that's the one response I had. The other response about the escalating fear. Is that as as we come to populate life more, we are moving somewhat out of a vacuum, but we're bringing the power and the the 
the power of sensitivity, I mean, having gone through the experience that you did, you know, we've touched very deep and profound places at those junctures. And we're bringing that tenderness out into a very harsh and wild world. And so while the fear feels greater, it may be that you're feeling more of what was always there. And while it's easy to say, and I, and I don't for a moment want to sound glib, that that you are aware of it and speak so eloquently and sincerely of it may be your greatest protection, I would venture to say is your greatest protection. Being aware of it, being willing to be here, being willing to speak about it, that's enormously courageous. And so, you know, as a brother, I salute you. angels in this room here today out in the world. instructions of are, you know, as I've offered them, you know, just be willing to begin again and to, but it's, you know, oh, blah, 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 blah. 
The world just comes so much. Um, when, as has been spoken, when the fear becomes intolerable, the heart whispers the medium for befriending. And usually, you know, I think it's the nature of the human heart that, that you know, in that the beauty of the practice is that we open to the truth, we open sometimes to the unpleasantness, to the pain, to all the ways that we're stuck. And in that willingness to come back again and again, feel again and again the constriction, the limitation of fear, the pain of feeling separate and disconnected from another person, just being willing to start again and again in the practice, in life, being sensitive, being vulnerable, as has been spoken, that at some point the heart just releases. I think it's the nature of the heart that we have to go back a certain number of times, and of course for each of us it's different, but at some point it's almost like enough. It's almost like enough. And we begin to see that we slowly are, 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 are making footsteps of friendship with fear rather than, than, than being in, in conflict with it. And I think for each of us it's very different. But the bottom line, the foundation level, is, as I suggested, recognizing, being willing to recognize the fear. I mean, the truth is that most of the world doesn't even, you know, believe that they experience fear, you know? So just being willing to recognize it and then accept it when we see it, huge, you know, in all the ways, you know, this is fear, you know? And then being willing to really embrace it, come into relationship with the fear. And then being willing to explore it and look into it and understand it. You know, that's where, where um, the process of meditation can be so helpful. Just beginning to understand how it works, what conditions it's arising, what the textures of it are, where we are most vulnerable to fear. And then, you know, how to work with it. One of the ways was certainly, you know, in the practice today, just being very grounded and foundation in the body. It's one of the reasons I love the practice of Tai Chi so much is that, you know, there's that sinking and the rooting of the energy in the ground. And then sinking, you know, in the other foot and just feeling of the ground. You know, that Rumi poem, there are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground. It's like really affirming one's gravitational relationship with the ground, you know, very important with fear. And so what's happened in the last year is when I find myself in fearful situations, one of the first responses, which is becoming almost instinctual, is that the energy drops down through my feet. And immediately it becomes far more workable because I'm not blown around. You know, before I was like one of those dolls. Do you know if you pull down and they come up like that? But now I feel like my feet are you know, in the ground. So I'm more aligned, and I'm not bouncing around, and I can respond so much more, more helpfully. So finding out all the different ways that work for you and being willing to experiment 
And then eventually, you know, the fifth stage, or this recognizing, accepting, embracing, looking deeply into it, the fifth is that spontaneous response. You know, compassion is the response of a heart that is open to suffering. And just a heart that is open to suffering, the loving-kindness practice that we're going to be doing, it just birthed. That step is benediction. You know, there's nothing we can do. It comes like the grace of God, you know. I hope that's helpful. Can we talk about centipedes? Ira, I'm so glad you brought up the subject. I was really worried that we weren't going to talk about centipedes. Please. Well, we all have our fears, so my little heart beats. I, I'm, I feel fearless uh, at this point on many things, but when I see a centipede, and I am getting better, <laughs> but when I see a centipede, my heart beats, mm -hmm. and, the, and then all those emotions come up. Mm -hmm. And so um, I'd like, and we all have our little centipedes, whatever they may be. Mm -hmm. So I'd like you to talk about that. <laughs> you know, it's simple. Okay. Form a support group. <laughs> Process. <laughs> Discharge. Bats. <laughs> What's that? Centipedes and bats. <laughs> there we go. I have a response. Yeah. It's not that I have something to say on every subject, but I was bitten by a centipede three times in one night. And I learned right then and there in my dream to fear them. But when I woke up and saw the big red spot and lift the covers off them, and it slithered out, my daughter woke up. And as I was going to kill it, she said, Mommy, maybe it's Buddha. <laughs> and so I ended up collecting it and putting it outside. And so I have I have an innate fear of insects. I think a lot of people have that innate fear, but because of my daughter, she said, You can say hi to it, Mommy. You just say hi and say, Don't worry, little fella, I'm gonna take care of it. <laughs> but that don't worry little fella, the minute you say don't worry little fella to a tarantula, you, you feel compassion for it. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> On my first trip to Hawaii, no it wasn't my first, but last year I spent about six weeks in Waimanalo in Honolulu. And on the first night, I was exhausted. I got there, and I went to the house. I opened the cupboard and was stung by something. And I couldn't believe it. And I was exhausted. It'd be a long flight, and there was snow and everything. And it was like two or three hours, you know, of really excruciating pain. 
and then it left. And, you know, I was appropriately proud of myself. I hadn't panicked, and, and, you know, I was Buddhist about it. I watched it. And the next morning, you know, I, you know, I called up Michelle and said to Michelle, this, this thing happened, you know, I, something happened. I opened up the cupboard, and she said, oh, my God, it was a centipede that got you. She said, go and have a look in the cupboard. And I opened up, and there was this great big rosy centipede there. Well, it was like, it was workable up until the, the point at which I knew what it was. <laughs> now I'm going to join your support group. I'm terrified. <laughs> I mean, it's sometimes it's just, you know, I mean, I don't want to diminish your fear of centipedes. No, please do. Or belittle. <laughs> But sometimes, especially if you're a drama queen, the, the embroidery, you know, just adds a whole lot of extra juice to it, you know? But I'm not for a moment suggesting that's the case. I'm the drama queen. <laughs> I'd like to suggest something for people that are afraid of insects. There's a beautiful movie that was uh, made in 1996 by a crew of French cinematographer. It took them six years to film the, the, the movie, and it's, it's on insects. There's no words. There's only sounds and music, oh. and it's called Microcosmos. It's oh. very truly, absolutely beautiful. Oh, wow, yeah. So.
That's why mm. I scoop it up and take it outside. I've never seen anyone scoop up my setup even take it outside. I've only seen them get smashed on the spot. You know? mm. <laughs> we won't even swamp a mosquito, you know. So that's what I learned about. Yeah, it's all mm. no, mm. no selection. Uh, it's uh, all encompassing. Mm. Excuse me, I have to change the subject because my toes are curling too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Don't be scared. <laughs> <laughs> um, if, if, and I'm not sure if you would call this fear or how, how you would deal with it in the steps that you've talked about, but if, if your fear is about someone else, not with someone, you know, it's not a personal fear, but it's, I guess, born out of concern, you know, for someone else, like what's going to happen to that person, or, you know, that type of thing. And so how do you, you know, the, the steps that you've been talking about are pretty much more you know, the things that are happening are, you know, more, more interpersonal, you know, to, within us. But when it's, you see what I'm saying? Mm. Well, you know, I think that, that I understand your perspective that, you know, within us and outside of us, and we're concerned about someone outside of us, but our process is still the inner process. And so, beginning to understand what's going on. Say, if I can use this word on the meditative level, what's happening is that the emotion of fear has arisen within you and there are a lot of thoughts being born out of it that are creating perhaps a scenario of what might happen to that person or what is happening. And it's not to say that we become docile and passive and wishy-washy in response to it, but understanding where we're caught and the energies that are arising within you, seeing them clearly, acknowledging them, perhaps even reflecting on this process, puts us in a better place from which to make a grounded, balanced decision and response to what is occurring with somebody else. It's not that the fear is bad, we just want to make it workable. Sometimes when we're so scared about the fate of another person, we can, re we can project in our communication with that other person our own fears, you know, our own unacknowledged, un ungrounded fears, and then they temper our, our, our reaction or our response to someone else. So again, it's understanding what's going on within us and from and that understanding becomes the springboard from which with discriminating wisdom and balance we then respond to the situation rather than a knee jerk fearful response but you made a very good point about your toes and i've been it's like you know it's 20 after 12 so Is it raining? No. Yeah. Uh, Paul? I don't know. Uh, yeah. No. No. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's like the Gavin and Paul show. <laughs> um, we're on the threshold of of lunch, I think. How does that sound? Is there a hands up for that? Okay. Okay, so that's decided. Um, is there any question that, or any statement, or any words that anybody would like to bring to us before we transition on you? Because I, you know, this has been a discussion that has been, and I just don't want us to interrupt. In, yeah. in the Course in Miracles, it says that everything that isn't fear is love. Right. Never found that to not be true. I um Would you like me to respond to that? Sure. Cause and miracles, and please correct me if I'm incorrect, and in a lot of the Christian mystical teachings, the fundamental issue is the one of separation from God, and that it is the return to God that, that is the fruition of, of, um, of this error of separation. We think that we separate from the great love that we are, or, the, or, or God, or whoever we, we, we term it. And in that forgetfulness, we are fearful. And so the whole journey is about a returning to the truth of who we are, when we call a Buddha nature returning to God. And um, I love, in the Kasi miracles, and in a lot of the Christian mystical teachings, they put it as simply as that, is that, you know, that when we're not in a state of grace, in a place of love, of connection, of peace, of equanimity, of balance, we're, we're in a place of fear, which, is, which um, is the disconnection. And when we remember who we are, then in that remembrance is the dissolution of fear forever. It would just, the cross even says that we were never disconnected, that it was just, it's just a dream that we're separate from God, that really we just have to realize the truth of who we are. And um, that the moments of fear are the moments of forgetting the truth. Is that? You know, I was thinking actually the other day about that because, you know, I was thinking, well, the Buddha was such a mathematician and such a scientist and such a, a tech, you know, I mean, you know, in the text there are, you know, hundreds of different shadings of fear, you know, and hundreds of different shadings of anger and shame and, 
and, every, and guilt, you know, I mean, it's just all these lists, interminable. And then, you know, in some of the mystical teachings, it, you know, it just, uh, you know, are so distilled. And I've no doubt that they're dealing with exactly the same thing. I mean, the truth is the truth, you know. And um, that sometimes it's so much easier just to see it in terms of love and fear. I like what the Course says about that, it's a tiny, mad idea. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a tiny, mad idea. <laughs> so, yeah. um, yes, of course. Um, I did something this past summer that I really wanted to do for a long time. I had this calling, and so I met it. Uh, I started uh, north of Seattle on a uh, Swinomish reservation, and I walked to Ken uh, just north of Kennebunkport, Maine. Uh, and I think what amazes me now is uh, I didn't really have a lot of fear when I was on the road, although there were a number of fearful situations. Um, and I think that this walk was uh, actually a, a pretty easy thing to do because I realize now, and I think as a result of the walk, um, that it brought a lot of my fears to the surface, and they're very, um, they're very upfront right now. But the funny thing is, I can do a walk of over 3,000 miles, and I consider it easy in comparison with dealing with my fears. Um, and I think as my walk was, it, I think it's a privilege. I could have stopped any time I wanted to. Um, I chose not to. I wanted to, to do this. And I think to a certain degree, our fears are also a privilege. I don't, have to, I, don't, I don't have to really worry about starving. I think I have food on the table, and I have a roof over my head, and I have friends, and um, you know, some of the you know, I don't have to worry about soldiers coming into my house and not uh, you know, killing my family or anything like that, uh, like other people in the world do. So in a lot of sense, the fears that I deal with are not these immediate kind of fears. And so I kind of think that, you know, this fear or these fears of my own are somewhat of a privilege. I'm privileged to be able to dwell on them. And I do believe that fears are something that we can get over with like that. I do believe that. I don't know how to do that, but I believe that. And speaking of movies, um, I know that The Fight Club wasn't necessarily a critically acclaimed movie, but there was one scene in The Fight Club, for those of you that didn't see it, where um, Brad Pitt, um, it was a pretty violent movie, but um, Brad Pitt, um, uh, they go into this store, him and his buddy, confronting him, like, is this how you want to spend your life? Is this what you want to do? And he's holding a gun to his head, and he's like, what do you really want to do with your life? And, you know, the guy says, I think he said, I want to be a veterinarian. He's like, why aren't you being a veterinarian? Why are you doing this? He's like, I am going to kill you and your family. I have your, your ID and your license. You have six weeks to become a veterinarian. Do it. <laughs> and what was great was, I think, for me, it was like Brad Pitt replaced this guy's maybe hidden fear of actually doing what he wanted to do with a very immediate fear 
which really didn't exist because Brad Pitt didn't really mean to do that. He actually meant for this guy to do what he really wanted to do, and I mm. thought it was mm. great. Yeah. <laughs> you can change like that if you have that whatever it is that mm. can get you to do it. Mm. And uh, I hope I can find it. <laughs> <laughs> this relates a little bit to that. I, I sometimes wonder what it is in people that one person is, you know, about, you know, climbing Mount Everest or hiking through the jungles or walking. And I myself have fears of things like that. And I try to push myself beyond some of those physical adventure fears because I know it feels good after I've done it. But I know there is a fear, and yet I look at other people who are fearlessly bungee jumping and parachuting, and I'm wondering if some of that isn't coming from the past and some, you know, maybe from, you know, my conditioning early on in life or some genetic makeup or is it something that can be overcome or is it something just to watch and just to be in the present with and deal with it as it comes up in the moment? Well, you know, Faith, it's like I've seen you dancing on stage and it's so beautiful and so fearless. And I'm not afraid of that. <laughs> yeah, and maybe he would be terrified to go on stage and dance like that, you know? And so it's like, you know, I think that we're each given our own journeys, you know, and so it's really important for you in our community to be the dancer and to show us what's possible, you know, and you're our walker, you know, and, you, you know, and we, we, we are, I mean, I, I think as human beings, one of the greatest gifts that we can give one another is our fearlessness. It's almost like in your dancing, you invite us to come and swim in your fearlessness of expressing yourself in your body that way. So those of us who are less comfortable can come into that pool and feel fearless ourselves and feel, well, this feels kind of nice. It's kind of nice to feel like faith here, do you know? Or, you know, in the walking or whatever. And so as a community, our fearlessness is a great gift. <laughs> And our fear expresses itself in so many different ways. You know, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's so important. You know, the meditation practice can, can appear to be so solitary. And you know, for those of us, and I include myself, who love solitude and love going off to mountaintops and love being on retreats and stuff, it's like that can take you so far. And we have to come back into relationship with one another and be touched and touch one another. Because in the end, I don't think that we can do it on our own. You know, you know, it's like Jesus said, you know, when two or more are gathered in my name, there I will be. You know, we need each other to remind, as you've reminded us right now. So thank you, Faith. Thank you, <laughs> <laughs> I just want to share something that when I came here, uh, I came from Toronto, I originally from Honolulu, and I found this place on the website on the, on, on the computer. Anyway, when I was out in Honolulu, I decided, well, 
when I phone you, they say, oh, we are in a very remote place in the whole bay, you know. So I see you driving in a new place and say, oh, what if I got lost and this and that, you know, go on and on in my head. So I, I forget about it. I'll just go to the beach and lie down under the sun. But I do know that I need something deeper, you know, spiritual growth for me. So anyway, I was in the hotel. And I, did, I opened the drawer. It was this, I mean, a lot of hotels only buy a Bible, Bibles in there. But this hotel, they have... Uh, the Buddha teaching. So I said, that was the message. I said that. And at that moment, I said to my, all my fear was gone. I said, all I need to do is making that decision and to decide yes or no, you wanted to go. Forget about the fear of driving and this and that. So the next day, so that was the evening that I phoned over here and tell them that I'm going to come. And that's when I went down onto the street to find how am I going to get here. As I was standing on the street, uh, looking through the pamphlet of problems, this guy approached me. He wanted to go some, somewhere, you know, you know, take cruises and stuff like that. I said, I'm not going to cruises, but I'd like to go to Big Island, but I don't know how to go about. So he brought me to the to the travel agent, and I, she was she's from Big Island. So then she guided me through how am I going to get here and the whole thing. Mm. I got my tickets and everything. <laughs> and then yesterday I drove all the way here and nothing happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> I just need courage, that's about it. <laughs> I just want to thank you for uh, proposing the idea that fear can be your friend. And once again, it's like the adverse things, and we turn them into opportunities. I think they unlock into wisdom and joy and happiness. I think uh, maybe that's cracking a cosmic egg, and fear is turning into your friend and watching it do good things for you. Mm. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. Same way with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all ramble a bit, and there's probably a question in it. Yeah. Um, I, I think what I notice, and I, I want to say fear of change, but what it is is a, I feel that Anicca, the nature of change, that I don't get it cellularly, and because of that, I fear when things change. <coughs> and like you know, you said, well, change can happen like that, and never experienced it, but. I, my sense of that is I really accepted that ch that change is the nature of things, really, not just the idea about it, but it would also be so much easier. And I, I'm actually terrified of change in a lot of levels. And you know, when I hear people talk just to speak now, I feel fear, shame, you know, not safe, confused, should I say something, should I not, you know, um, anger, sadness, all of it. And so, it's not it's not simple but somehow things are just not not simple for me fear isn't just one thing it's this whole glob of stuff and and i find that when i'm in it i don't know how to break it down into the little itty bitty moments of being in the moment that i experience it as this this glob of stuff that's just so difficult to um, do anything I guess the questions are around Anisha itself and 
of Jesus or the cellular understanding of that and just when it is so when it's not just simple it's, com- it's complex what to do in that right. moment is that clear? yes um, and I want to invite you if I don't address it fully I want to ask you please to remind me to come back to it this afternoon okay, a very important <coughs> question because I'm aware that we've been here for almost two hours. I think that we can hoodwink ourselves into the notion that the only way that that there's only one, that, that there's a prerequisite in respect to our perception that needs to manifest before we can be free. So in other words, you have this glob where it's all coming together and that's how we are as human beings. We you know incredible the complexity that never comes like a pure white shaft of fear followed by absolutely succinct shaft of red anger, you know. You know, <laughs> you know, it's not like that although we would like it to be that way and there's a sort of, a sort of comfort in holding that concept, you know, but it just doesn't work that way. So there are times when it's like the whole catastrophe is with you. You know, the fear, the anger, the confusion, the pain in the body, everything. And those, I think, are the most succulent times because we have to let go of every notion of how we have to deal with it. Basically, for me, the question is, how can I be as present as possible with this? And sometimes it's not about microscopic awareness. Sometimes it's about having awareness. That side, the edge of the awareness is on Kauai, and this side, you know, you know, it's on the west coast of the United States. That big to hold the chaos, but but not last. Okay, so it's almost like. The notion that it needs to be small and microscopic is the very undoing of being aware. Sometimes, you know, a completely formless, unconfined awareness is, is just as powerful. Sometimes you can see if you can go just around the edges of the confusion and touch them. You know, heaven, you know, right down there, you know, other side of Africa on the other side, you know, it's the confusion. And just, just touching them. And that's fine. And that's being aware, rather than being, you know, confused and scattered and everything. And so the notion of microscopicity, whatever you call it, can become its own hindrance, you know. So there are, there, there, there are times, you know, just saying, you know, just sitting and saying, you know, confusion. You know, there's confusion or chaos. And just being willing to hang out with that and not to be panic-stricken is, is the way of awareness, you know, is the way of meditation practice. <coughs> as far as the anicca, you know, your question about anicca is the Pali word for change, you know, and we see in the meditation, you know, in the meditation we did this morning about being aware of the sensations arising and passing away, being aware that everything is changing, very important insight. And the reason it's important is that we suffer because we try to hold on to something and everything that we try to hold on to is going to change. And when something that we want changes, 
we're in trouble and we suffer. So just being willing as you are to open to the suffering, it's kind of like Linda's question there, is just being willing to open to the suffering is all we have to do. It's like the heart releases in its own time, whether as, you know, as our friend said there, you know, it can happen in an instant. For most of us, it happens like walking through the mist, you know, you walk through the mist for a day and suddenly we realize we're wet and we don't know how it happened. Sometimes that's the way the path unfolds, that slowly in our willingness to come back to the moment, be there to feel the pain of where we attach, to feel how hard it is to hold on to something that's changing, <coughs> and being there again and again, day after day, year after year, eventually at some point the heart says, no more, no more. And that's, you know, the grace, that's the benediction, that we cannot put a timetable on, an agenda, we cannot contrive it. That happens. That just is, you know. That's the mystery. You know, it's what people like Rumi write beloved poetry about. It's like, you know, it's so painful to be disconnected from God. And we all have our ways of trying to do it. And usually our efforts get in the way, you know. And that's the mystery. Where do you think fear comes from? I mean, like, <laughs> not, I, not only humans have it, animals have it too. Yeah, yeah. Okay, may I hold that question for after lunch? Yeah. Okay, it's a very important question. Long question too. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Does that feel okay? Yeah. And I, I know there was another question at the back, but is it okay if we <coughs> postpone that question? Please. So, I would like to ask if we could just return to stillness before lunch for a moment. German poet Rilke were with us this afternoon. This is probably what he'd say to us. We have no reason to harbor any mistrust against our world, for it is not against us. If it has terrors, they are our terrors. If it has abysses, these abysses belong to us. If there are dangers, we must try to love them. And only if we can arrange our lives in accordance with the principle that tells us that we must always trust in the difficult, then what now appears to us to be alien will become our most intimate and trusted experience. How can we forget those ancient myths that stand at the beginning of all races, the myths about dragons that at the last moment are transformed into princesses? Perhaps all the dragons in our lives are only princesses waiting for us to act just once, with beauty and with courage. Perhaps everything that frightens us is in its deepest essence 
something helpless that wants our love. So you must not be frightened if a sadness arises before you larger than any you have ever seen. If an anxiety like light and cloud shadows moves over your hands and everything that you do, you must realize that something has happened to you. Life has not forgotten you, that it holds you in its hand, and that it will not let you fall. Time is now a quarter to one. Is there a bell ringer for after lunch among us? Thanks, Faith. Why don't we say, um, if you would ring the bell, let's say, 10 after, 5 after 2. Thank you. Um, I <coughs> invite you to, as we break up, to, if, if it feels comfortable, I've asked Paul to, to be up at the Buddha there, and we have a, a blessing, and so we thought it might be lovely if, after we break up, if we could continue the, the presence, the mindfulness, the awareness, if you'd like to to get your lunch or whatever it is that you have to eat and bring it up to the statue. We just sort of do a blessing there together um, in the lap of the Buddha uh, <laughs> um, before we go our different ways for the lunch period. Um, Faith will ring the bell in about an hour and 20 25 minutes or so, and then we'll come together for the afternoon session. I really encourage you to use this time um, as what, for me, the blessing it is of being together in community uh, in silence. I do, of <coughs> course, understand that some of you may need to talk, and if that's necessary, of course, that's fine. But if you could just do it some distance away from um, the buildings here, it would be nice if this continued to be a place of, of quiet. Thank you so much. again, giving attention to the sitting posture, to the sitting position, holding the trunk as directly and perpendicularly as possible.
giving attention in the initial minutes of the meditation to the sitting posture, the feeling of pressure, of heat, any areas of tightness and tension. Mindfulness of the body in the body. time as it feels appropriate, allowing the awareness to shift to the changing sensations of the breathing as the breath enters and as the breath leaves the body. Without interfering with the breath, without judging it if possible, without manipulating or changing the breathing, allowing the body to breathe itself. once again, wherever it is that you experience the breathing most distinctly, allowing the awareness, the mindfulness, to rest there. will from time to time wander. That's okay. It's returning to the changing sensations of the breath as it enters, as it leaves. This willingness to begin again and again and again is the heart of the meditation practice.
anchoring the attention, resting the attention with the changing sensations of the breath, entering, leaving the body. Sometimes it's possible to be aware of the spaces between the in-breath and the out-breath, between the breaths, resting with awareness. Mindfulness of the body in the body as it breathes itself. is called away, the attention moves to a thought, to a sound, to a sensation in the body, just acknowledging what has occurred and return easily, simply to the experience of breathing. find it helpful to use a very soft background mental note to help stabilize the attention with the experience of breathing. A soft note like in and out, or rising, falling, keeping the note very, very much in the background, giving and wholehearted attention to the changing sensations of the breath as it enters and as it leaves the body.
willingness to begin again and again and again is the heart of the meditation practice. One in-breath, one out-breath. The mind is still and collected, sensitive. It's even possible be aware of the beginning, the middle, and the end of the in-breath, resting in the space between breaths, and then being present for the birth, the life, and the death of the out-breath, beginning to see the arising and passing away of all things, including the breath as the body breathes itself, moment to moment.
beginning now to open the awareness to include other facets of experience, bringing the same quality of attention, awareness, mindfulness to the sounds arising, being present to the myriad sounds, including sounds in the field of awareness, bringing the same unjudging awareness to the hearing. Here too it's possible to be aware of the beginning and the end of sounds, the spaces between sounds. Here too using a soft note if that feels skillful to you. Using the breath as an anchor, beginning to open the field of awareness to include sounds, other sensations in the body. Using the breath as an anchor to bring some calm, some collection of mind, and then opening up sounds to emotions, including emotions in the field of awareness. Emotions like love and peace, perhaps, feelings of anger or frustration, interludes of joy or fear, anxiety, anger, rage bringing that same quality of mind to the objects of mind, the emotions, using soft note if necessary to help stabilize the attention. Arises, be aware that thinking has occurred. Always returning to the breath as the anchor. Opening to all of life without discrimination, to the tastes, to the smells. Voiceless awareness. remembering that the willingness to begin again and again and again is the heart of the meditation.
in the last few minutes of this sitting, just releasing the awareness, just allowing the attention to be with whatever arises. Allowing each moment, each present moment to be the teacher. Nothing personal, nothing that belongs. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.